Recently, I was driving over the overpass, Green Tea Road over there across uh, 55, and I noticed that morning, it was early in the morning, that there was a really thick fog, and the fog was so thick that you couldn't even see the cars uh, coming by on I-55. As a matter of fact, it was so thick, I remember remarking to my son Caleb, who was with me, look at that fog. It was just really noticeable that morning. Here's what's interesting. Just shortly thereafter, I mean, just, just a few minutes after that, as the sun rose in the sky, the sun burned away and dissipated that fog. And that fog, which was so thick and covered up, uh, everything you could see was, was just like that, vanished. It was gone. The sun burned it away. Well, I believe that in our culture today, when it comes to spiritual things, we are living in a fog There are so many views out there and ideas related to God and related to spirituality. And people are so confused and and, and so twisted up by all the different ideas and views that we are living under a spiritual fog. And you say, wait, how do you deal with a spiritual fog? Well, you shine brightly the light of truth. And the light of truth will burn through that spiritual fog and will dissipate that spiritual fog. And what our culture needs today is that the culture needs the church to be the church and to let the light of truth shine brightly in our world. And so keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to the the book of Jude, the next to the last book of the Bible. Right before you get to Revelation, you'll find one chapter That's why there's no chapter reference. There's only one chapter, the book of Jude. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. I love that joke. I always say it. Sorry. (laughs) Look with me in the book of Jude. We're going to begin reading in verse 3. Then we're going to fast forward to the end of that book. We began a summer sermon series last week on the doctrine of the Trinity. We're taking a break from the book of Acts, and we are considering... Uh, the realities of our triune God all summer long. Jude, verse 3, I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And I just want to say this morning, I'm grateful for my church family. How about you? I'm grateful for the Word of God. God has not left us to wander in the fog. He's given us His Word, truth with no mixture of error. I'm grateful today for my Bible. Hey, I'm grateful today for the cross. How about you? Is that the cross where I first saw the light? Jude verse 3, the Bible says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Biblical Christianity is not ever-changing. It is one faith that has been uh, delivered to the saints. It's a faith that we are to build our lives upon. It does not change. Now, fast forward to verse 17. Jude goes on to write to the believers, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So Jude is reminding the Christians that he's writing to that in the last days there would come 
false teachers, scoffers, heretics who are causing division, leading people astray. And look what he says in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, I find it interesting that as Jude uh, encourages these Christians to stand against scoffers and false teachers, he reminds them of the reality of their relationship with God and the reality of living in light of the Trinity. Did you notice there? He mentioned the Spirit, and he mentioned God, the Father, and he mentioned Jesus Christ. And so he's mentioning the truth about God, the relationship we have with the triune God. And then he says... Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so Jude's saying, you stand on the truth and realize there are going to be people all around you who are not in the truth. And it is our job to reach out to them with the truth and snatch them from the fire so they can build their lives on something that is true and real and something that will save their lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, keeping that in mind, let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for this opportunity to gather as a faith family and to dig into your word and let you speak into our lives. Lord, I pray that as we worship today, we would worship in light of the reality of who you are. You are one God. Existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God our Father, we are grateful that we can come to you in prayer. And we are grateful that you sent your Son to come to this earth and to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for our sins. And Holy Spirit, we we need you in these moments. We believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. We believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Spirit of God, would you... Open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the truths of Scripture and give us the inclination, the wherewithal to to respond to what you show us. Lord, we are asking you to transform our lives and we are asking you to transform our lives ultimately for your glory. So may you be lifted up in this place and exalted. It's all about you. You are the center of attention. You are the reason that we're here, Lord. So would you just move in our midst in a mighty, mighty way And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, last week as we began our summer sermon series, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, study on the doctrine of the Trinity, I began by giving you a definition of the Trinity. And my purpose last week was to answer two questions. Number one, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? And I gave you a definition last week, and I tried to show you that that definition was biblical. It was backed up by... Uh, God's Word. And by the way, if the Trinity is unbiblical, we don't want anything to do with it. But if the doctrine of the Trinity is rooted in the Scriptures, then we better understand it and we better take hold of it and grasp it as truth about God. And so I tried to show you last week that the the definition I showed you was a biblical definition. And then I tried to answer this question, what does it matter? I mean, why, why do we need to be concerned with the doctrine of the Trinity. We talked about the relevance of that doctrine for our lives. And today what I want to do is I want to uh, defend the doctrine of the Trinity against different types of error that have encroached uh, on the church 
through church history and even in today's time. Some of the the ancient heresies related to God are still around today. And I feel like that if we understand where people get it wrong, it'll help us to understand the truth better. And so we're going to look at some of those, those departures, if you will, from the truth about the doctrine of God. But first, I want to just remind you of our working definition. Last week I gave you a longer definition and, and a shorter definition, and the shorter definition is what we're calling our working definition. Here it is. The Bible teaches that there is one true God eternally existing in three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean when I say the Trinity. That is the, 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 the doctrine of the Trinity in summary form. The Bible teaches that there is one true God eternally existing in three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And just kind of a statement, I made this statement last week, but I want to remind you of this statement this week. Belief in the Trinity is a test of orthodoxy. If you don't hold to the biblical teaching about God, you're not talking about Christianity anymore. You're talking about some other religion, some other view. And so we need to know the truth about God, the truth of what the Bible says, because belief in the Trinity is a test of orthodoxy. That's how you know if you're a biblical Christian or not is, hey, do I believe what the truth says about God? One of the ways you know whether you're a Christian, do I believe the truth about God? Michael Reeves writes, what makes Christianity absolutely, absolutely distinct is the identity of our God, which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself. And every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. So saying you got to get it right when it comes to God. Now, last week, I shared with you, when it comes to studying God, we need to remind ourselves that God is incomprehensible. In other words, God is finite or infinite, and we are finite. So it's hard for finite people to wrap their minds and hearts around infinity, right? So we can't, we can't fully understand who God is, but we can understand what God has revealed about himself in the pages of Scripture. So I've given you this very important quote. I love it. It comes from Tim Chester. Though we cannot know God fully, we can know him truly. Let me say it again. Though we cannot know God fully, can't fully wrap our minds around an infinite God, we can know him truly. We can build our lives upon, our faith upon, what the Bible tells us about God. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you three major departures from the truth about God, especially the doctrine of the Trinity, and then I want to give you three reasons we need to get the doctrine of the Trinity right. All right? So let's begin by looking at three major departures from the truth about the triune God. Now, here's a quick public service announcement. I'm going to use some big words this morning. All right, just letting you know. I heard some comments about some big words I used last week. But I'm going to use some big words this week. And that's okay because trigonometry is a big word. Right? And we expect our, our teenagers to learn it. Right? Hey, hey, listen. Refrigerator's a big word. Did that stop you from opening it up this morning? Right? So yeah, we're going to have some big words, but these are important words because we need to get it right when it comes to God. I mean, that's, that's an area of reality you don't want to get wrong, right? And so just hang with me. I want to try to explain these things to the best of my ability, but they're going to help us to really hone in and clarify what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. And so three major departures 
uh, from the truth about the triune God. And what I want to do is I want to show you a diagram. I'm going to show it to you three times. And this diagram is going to help to kind of guide our discussion on the departures from uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now let me just kind of orient you to that diagram. First of all, the three sides represent three foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. Monotheism is a foundation. There's one God. Equality among the persons of the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all fully God. They're all, in that sense, equal to one another. That's a foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And, of course, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So the three sides represent three foundations of this doctrine. The three points represent three heresies, three departures from this doctrine. So let me just show you how it works. If you take away any of the sides, the other two sides point you to the resultant heresy. So for example, if you take away monotheism, one God, we believe in one God, then the other two sides point you to what? Polytheism. Everybody see that? And that is one of the departures, that's the first one in your notes, one of the departures from the doctrine of the Trinity. So what is polytheism? It comes from uh, two words put together. Poly means many. Theism stands for gods. It means many gods. And polytheism is the unbiblical idea. This is not in the Bible. It's the unbiblical idea that there is more than one God. It's important we define this correctly because due to some misunderstandings of the doctrine of the Trinity, Christians are sometimes accused of holding this view. As a matter of fact, many who are of the faith of Islam, if they engage a Christian in conversation about God, they will often say, well, Christians are polytheistic or Christians are tritheists. They believe in three gods. And they uh, do not understand the foundation that we hold to, the foundation of monotheism. And so the Bible is clear that there's one and only one God. That's what I mean by monotheism. Mono, one, theism, God. There's only one God. And I showed you Deuteronomy 6 last week, but let me show you Deuteronomy 4 this week. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and a lot of passages we could go to. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. In this chapter, God is reminding them of his power that he showed to the nation of Israel when he delivered them from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. He says, To you it was shown, the power of God, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. So clearly the Bible speaks of God being monotheistic. There is only one God. James chapter 2 says the same thing. That, hey, you believe in God as one? You ought to. The demons even believe that. There is only one God. Christians who believe the Bible. Oh, well, if you're a Christian, you believe the Bible. But, but as we believe the Bible, we believe the Bible teaches there is only one God. The Bible is clear on that. And, and here's where a lot of people get it wrong. Because a lot of people say, well, wait, Christians contradict themselves. They believe God is one and God is three. That violates the laws of non-contradiction. God can't be one and three. Well, listen to me. It's not a contradiction because when we say God is one and God is three, we're referring to two different aspects of God. When we say God is one, we're referring to his essence or his nature. When we say God is three, we're referring to the three persons who all possess the same essence of godness. So the oneness of God refers to his essence and his purpose. Turn to Isaiah 44 with me very quickly. I want to show you this. Isaiah 44. I want to show you how the oneness of God refers to God's essence or nature. Isaiah 44 verse 6. 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Notice that's an essence question. There's one God. Who is like me? Who has that same quality of godness that I have? Who has that same essence or nature? Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. So the Bible is clear. There is one God, and the oneness of God refers to his essence and purpose. So Christians are not polytheistic. We are decidedly monotheistic. We believe there is one and only one God, right? So we can't remove that foundation of monotheism. It points to polytheism. Let me show you the diagram again. There's another foundation here that we need to make sure that we build upon. And it's the foundation of three persons. That's one of the foundations of the Trinity. There's one God in essence and nature existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Now, if you remove that foundation, three persons, the other two sides point to what? Tracking with me? Modalism, right. If you remove the foundation of the three persons, the other two sides of the triangle point to the heresy of modalism. You say, what in the world is modalism? And why does it matter? All right. Let me tell you what modalism is. Modalism is the heretical view that God is a single person who, throughout history, has revealed himself in three modes or forms. It's the idea that God manifested himself as one person at a time. So modalists believe that God was God the Father for a while in the Old Testament, and then he stopped being God the Father in the New Testament and became God the Son. And he was God the Son for a while, and then after Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back to the Father, he stopped being God the Son for a while and became God the Holy Spirit. And now he functions as God the Holy Spirit. He's one mode at a time. That's the ancient view called modalism. Now, uh, this view was popularized in the 3rd century by a Bible teacher named Sibelius. Uh, he was from North Africa, and he also taught in Rome And he popularized this view called modalism that he learned from some earlier uh, teachers. Now this view, modalism, listen to me carefully, violates the clear teaching of Scripture. It violates the clear teaching of Scripture. God is not one person at a time. There's one God existing at the same time in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And I showed you a passage last week. Remember Matthew chapter 3? We see that picture of Jesus Christ, God on earth, God in human flesh, being baptized. He comes out of the water, and then at the same time, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, descends like a dove onto Jesus to anoint him and empower him for ministry. And then at the same time, there's a voice from heaven. It's the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you have all three persons of the Godhead functioning at the exact same time. Not one mode at a time. They're all there together in that story, right? And then you got John 17. John 17 is sometimes called the high priestly prayer or the Lord's prayer. Jesus is talking to his father. And and if, if modalism is true, who was Jesus talking to? Himself? No. Jesus Christ was talking to the first person of the Godhead, his Father. And we see this beautiful interaction between God the Father and God the Son in the prayer life of Jesus. And so John 17 teaches that modalism can't be true. Jesus was actually talking to 
his father. And then over in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, in Peter's sermon to Cornelius, Peter says that the Holy Spirit came and anointed Christ for ministry. Jesus lived as fully God, fully man, and in his humanity, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to obey the Father. So again, you have the Holy Spirit and the Son existing at the same time, fulfilling different roles. And so this view of modalism, God existing one mode at a time, clearly violates Scripture. And this view, listen carefully, undermines the gospel. It undermines the very gospel in which we embrace and build our lives and stake our eternities upon. Look what it says over in Isaiah 53. I love this passage. Isaiah 53. It's a passage that was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked on the earth, but it so clearly speaks of him. Isaiah chapter 53. Look what it says in verse 4. Love this passage. Surely he, Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. Hey, real quick, how many of you are glad this morning that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for your transgressions? Boy, I'm glad because you're looking at a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm so grateful that Jesus Christ went to the cross for me. So he was was pierced for our transgressions. He He was crushed For our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. You may be here this morning and say, wait, I've got issues. Well, welcome to the club. We all got issues. The Bible says we all have gone astray. We've all sinned against God. We've all turned away from him, right? We're all sinners that need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. The Lord, the Father, has laid upon the Son the iniquity of us all. And then fast forward to verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You know what that verse means? That verse means that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he took all of our sin on himself. And it says here, the Lord laid our sin upon him. And when Jesus was on the cross bearing our sin, God the Father was crushing him under the weight of his wrath and punishment that we deserve. Jesus took our punishment for us on the cross. Now listen to me. If modalism is is true, and God's only one person at a time, when Jesus was on the cross, who was pouring out wrath? How are our sins being punished if there is no Father there to to pour out wrath and to punish? The only way, listen, that the atonement works is if there are three persons. One God, three persons, all existing at the same time. So that when Jesus was on the cross obeying the Father in the power of the Spirit, the Father could pour out His wrath, the wrath our sins deserve, on the Son, and the Son could pay the penalty on our behalf. That's the only way the atonement works. So modalism undermines the gospel. And you say, wait, this is some ancient deal you're talking about. Listen to me, it's still around today. The group that define themselves as oneness Pentecostals, they hold to modalism. And this is not some denominational deal where you know, the Baptists are talking about the oneness Pentecostals. This is the, the gospel that's at stake. And there are people out there that, that, 
that, that hold to, to modalism. And when you hold to modalism, you lose the gospel. It undermines that reality. And so one foundation that we need to hold on to is monotheism. Another foundation is the, the plurality of the persons, the three persons of the one Godhead. Because if we do away with that, then we are led to modalism. But there's another foundation that you see here on the diagram. The third foundation is equality, that all three persons of the Godhead are fully equally God. All right? If you take away that foundation, the other two sides point to what? Subordinationism. You say, what in the world is subordination? Aren't you glad you came to church today? What, what in the world is subordinationism? Subordinationism, you hear the word subordinate in there? One under another? Subordinationism is the heresy that Jesus as a created being, that people who, are, who believe in subordination believe that Jesus was created. Jesus as a created being is not eternal and divine and is therefore not equal to God. Subordinate, uh, subordinationists believe that, hey, Jesus is good, but he's not fully God. He was created by God. He may be higher than us, but he's, he's lower than God. And so they deny the equality of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, this view is unbiblical. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is fully God. It says in Colossians 2 that in him the fullness of deity dwells. Over in uh, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father, two persons mentioned, I and the Father, we are one. So two persons that possess the same essence, the oneness of God. And so that verse teaches that that Jesus Christ is equal to the Father because he possesses uh, the the, the attributes, the the nature of Godness, if you will. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6 says that that Jesus the Son did not grasp for equality with God because he already had it. He didn't didn't long to be equal with God. He was equal to God because he is God who's existed from eternity past. So this view is unbiblical. And this view undermines the sufficiency of Christ's death. We're not just dealing with some minor things here. This view of subordinationism undermines what Christ's death means for us. So let me illustrate. Over a two-week period, I had... Um, Jehovah's Witness come to my door. The first week, it was a man that was by himself, and he'd been a Jehovah's Witness for years and years and years. He was hardened in that belief, and and uh, to me, he came across a little arrogant. He probably thought I, thought I came across a little arrogant, but uh, he came across a little arrogant, and he was hardened in his views and was actively seeking to lead people astray. And so I, I talked to him, and the next week, two ladies came. And one was the trainer. She wasn't talking. She was just watching everything transpire. The other lady, probably newer to Jehovah's Witness uh, beliefs, she was, she was doing all the talking. And, and with both groups, you know what I did? I went directly to the gospel. Because here's what cults try to do. They try to get you off on, on issues that, that ultimately don't matter. They try to get you distracted by things that are on the fringes instead of dealing with the center and the heart of the Christian faith. And so what I did with both of these uh, occasions is I went directly to the gospel. And, and Jehovah's Witness, they believe that Jesus is subordinate to the Father. He's not fully God or eternally God. He's a created being. That's what Jehovah's Witness believe. So here's how I share the gospel with these Jehovah's Witness. I said, we have all sinned against an infinitely holy God. God is perfect, he's light in him, there's no darkness at all, and his holiness knows no boundaries. That's why 
when we sin against an infinitely holy God, we deserve infinite punishment. Hey, have you ever wondered why hell is forever? Hell never ends, does it? If someone rejects Christ, they, they, they go to hell, they, they, they're in hell forever and ever and ever, paying the infinite debt their sin deserves. Hell never ends because our offense against an infinitely holy God deserves infinite punishment. So I said to these folks, our only hope is that someone who is infinite himself would come and pay that price for us. That's why it's important that Jesus is not a created being, but that, as the Bible says, Jesus is God himself who is infinite in his nature and his character and his essence, so that when Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, went to the cross, he could pay that infinite debt that you and I owe. If Jesus is a created being, he could not make that infinite payment, and his death on the cross would have no bearing on our lives. So this is a big deal. This is the gospel at stake. And subordinationism, and there's all sorts of view, or sorts of derivatives of this, that Jesus created, he's a, he, he, you know, he, he's a lesser than God, really undermines the sufficiency of Christ's death. And this was a big deal in, in church history. There was a deacon in Alexandria, Egypt, by the name of Arius, and he lived in the 3rd and 4th centuries. And he really popularized this view of subordinationism, that Jesus Christ was not fully God, not eternally God. He was, he was a created being. And he was heroically opposed by a leader, a bishop from Alexandria named Athanasius. And to deal with the, the, the arguments between those who believe that Jesus was subordinate to the Father and those that believe Jesus is equal to the Father in essence and nature, uh, to, to solve this issue, Constantinople, the emperor who was a believer, uh, convened a church council in a place called Nicaea, right outside of uh, Istanbul or Constantinople. And he, he said, I, I want these leaders together to solve this issue because it's causing a, a schism among the churches. So we need to get this nailed down when it comes to who Jesus is and, and this doctrine. And so they met at the doctrine, uh, I'm sorry, the Council of Nicaea, and they had vehement discussions on both sides, but finally orthodoxy won out. And they wrote a doctrinal statement called the Nicene Creed. Uh, that defined what the Bible teaches about the the nature and essence of Jesus Christ. So orthodoxy went out, but after the Nicene Creed was written, the opponents, Arius and his followers, they didn't go away. They began to, to, to attack Athanasius and others, and Athanasius boldly stood for the truth about the Trinity, the truth about Jesus Christ. And, and the, the battle in 325 AD at Nicaea, it came down to one letter. Both sides were arguing over one letter. You're talking about a good church business meeting fight? This was, this, it, got, it, got, it got really heated. And it was over one letter. He said, what, what letter? The letter was the little Greek letter iota. It looks like an I. And, and those who followed Arius that said Jesus is subordinate to the Father, not equal to the Father, they said we should say that Jesus is homoousios. He is of similar substance to the Father. You know, he's kind of like him, but not fully like him. And Athanasius and those standing for the truth said, no, drop the iota. He's homoousios. He is of the exact same substance as the Father, the exact same nature. They were fighting over one letter. 
And I'm so glad that those that were Orthodox won out. And they wrote the Nicene Creed. Let me give you just a few words of the Nicene Creed to show you how this, this matters, why this one letter matters. They wrote, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, eternally existing as Son, but not created, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's homoousios. They dropped the iota. Not of similar substance, of one substance. He, he, Jesus possessed the exact same substance that the Father possesses and the Spirit possesses. All three persons of the Godhead are fully God. And if you take away that foundation, it leads you to error. It leads you to subordinationism. and We don't want to go there. So, you say, wait, why the diagrams and the words and church councils and Greek letters? I mean, wait, what's the big deal? Let me show you just very quickly why all this matters. Why it is so vital that we should be well-versed in the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the second point. Three reasons we should be well-versed in this doctrine. Number one, know the truth so you can recognize error. Know the truth so you can recognize error. As we live in the reality of the Trinity, we must be on guard against false doctrine. Jude told us there would always be people seeking to infiltrate the church and scoff at the truth and lead people astray. So we must be on guard. And the best way to be on guard is to know the truth about God. It's the best way, to know what the Bible says. I've been told, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've been told that treasury agents who are tasked with identifying counterfeit money, the way that they're trained is not by studying counterfeit money. What I've read is that they are trained by studying real money. And they know what the real bill looks like so well that when you put a counterfeit beside the real thing, they instantly know something's off. They instantly know, no, that's not real. That is fake. That's a counterfeit. And our job as Christians is to get into the Word of God, to grow in our knowledge of God, so we know God so well, know the truth about God so well, that when a counterfeit rises up, we instantly say, no, that's not right. That's what we ought to be about. Wait, where would I begin? I mean, how? I don't know about Arius and Constantinople and Iotas and what do you... I don't have diagrams in my Bible. Wait, what's, how do I, where do I begin? Begin by learning that little working definition of the Trinity I've given you. Just commit it to memory. And that can begin to guide your thoughts about God and help you to identify error when you hear it. So if you're ever in a small group, you're in a meeting and you're studying God's Word, or you're sitting down with somebody uh, over coffee and, and uh, just talking about God's Word or talking about the Lord or having a spiritual discussion and someone says, we well, you know, uh, I believe that, that Jesus is great, but I believe He was created just like we were. Instantly, they say, no, that's not right. You speak the truth in love, but you instantly see that's, that's false because you know the truth. You know that subordinationism can't be true because if subordinationism is true, the gospel has been undermined. Jesus Christ, who is infinite, fully God, paid the infinite price our sin deserves. Amen? So we need to know the truth so we can recognize error. Number two, we need to know the truth so we can share the truth. Our goal is not just to say, well, we're right and everyone else is wrong. Right? And look at us. Look at how, how much knowledge we have. Aren't, aren't we great? We got the truth, right? That's not what the Bible's all about. 
The Bible is about snatching others from the fire. Jude, if you have the truth and the truth sets you free, we all, we all don't want to see people get free. And if they're far from God and they're believing a lie, our job is to reach out to them with love and to, to share the truth about God and the gospel so we can snatch them out of the fire and they can build their lives upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. That's our job. So to be able to, to share with people truth, we got to know the truth. One of the problems with cults coming and knocking on our doors is we don't know how to articulate the truth. We know something's kind of off, but we don't really know what it is. And, and these cult people, they twist us into pretzels. And we walk away confused and bewildered because we don't know how to articulate truth. So how can we reach them if we don't know what we're talking about, right? Years ago, it's probably over 10 years ago, I went to a winter Bible study in Wyoming. A group of pastors from this area flew out to Wyoming, and when we got there, they divided us up among uh, different churches, and we went to different churches in that area to teach a winter Bible study on First and Second Timothy. And so I was paired up with a pastor who pastored a small little Baptist church in Cokeville, Wyoming. And we went to this small little town of Cokeville. 95% of the town uh, were Mormon. I mean, the, the postmaster was Mormon, the the police chief, the fire chief, the mayor, everyone was Mormon. There's a small little group of Baptists meeting here in Cokeville, Wyoming. And so uh, I was out there in this town, and the pastor put me into a bed and breakfast with a Mormon family. So that uh, sparked a lot of interesting conversations. But one night, I was uh, teaching at the church. And I was teaching uh, on... uh, 1 Timothy, and I started talking about the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is fully God. So I was doing my thing, and a guy stood up in the middle of the service and said, that's not right. Now, I'm used to Southern folks that, you know, even though they may not agree with you, they're at least polite enough not to say anything in the service, right? For the most part. But, you know, they call it the Wild West for a reason. I was out there, and it was no holds barred. And this guy stands up and says, that's not right. His face was red. He was angry. He said, Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not God. Now, he is the Son of God. He's eternally existed as the Son of God, fully possessing Godness, the essence of Godness. So this man didn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So I, I, I was a little taken aback, and, and I began to just kind of walk through some scripture. We put aside what we were studying, and I began to walk through some scriptures. And I remember there was a kind of a turning point moment where the man softened, and really the church kind of got it. This small group of believers, we were studying together, and I took them to the Gospel of John, the the famous story where Doubting Thomas is in a room by himself, and he said, listen, if I don't see the nail prints in his hands, I'll not believe that he's risen from the dead. And then Jesus walks in the room, right? He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He walks in the room and says, hey, Thomas, look, here here are the nail prints. And at that moment, Thomas knew Jesus Christ crucified dead, buried, had been raised from the dead. And in that moment, he begins to worship, and he says, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus God, and Jesus does not refuse that worship. And I remember that was a kind of a turning point moment. That man softened in the service, and, and uh, he invited me and the pastor over for dinner one night with he and his wife, and we had some good conversation. I don't know if he ever became a believer in Christ. We have some great conversations, but listen to me. When someone says, that's not right, you got to know what to say next, right? You don't, just, you don't just pick up your toys and go home, right? 
Because listen, the goal is not to win an argument. It's to snatch his soul from the fires of hell. That's the goal. To win a person, not an argument, a person. And so we need to know the truth so that we can share the truth. We can engage the lost with the gospel. Here's the third thing, and I'll be through. Why should we, why should we be well-versed in the doctrine of the Trinity? We need to know the truth so we can rejoice in the truth. The doctrine of the Trinity has so many wonderful implications for our lives. I know this, these first two weeks have been heavy. All right, I, I, There's a foundation we need to delay, talk about these different things. But I think you're really going to enjoy the remainder of this summer. As we talk about the role of the three persons of the Godhead in our lives. We're going to talk about the, the Trinity in creation, the Trinity in our salvation, the Trinity in prayer, the Trinity in Bible study, the Trinity in missions, the Trinity in sanctification, the, the roles of the different persons of the Godhead in our lives. So we'll see the, 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 just the, the daily implications for our lives. And as we realize what it means that the one God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons and works in our lives, we will be overwhelmed with His glory and His goodness. And that's the goal. That we know the truth about God so we can worship Him, as it says in John 4, in spirit and in truth. I love this quote from Tim Chester. He writes, I've always found the doctrine of the Trinity exciting. Thinking through it takes us deeper into the triune God who is the foundation of all reality. This is the God who made us to know Him, who gives meaning and joy to our lives. To explore Him is a wonderful adventure. I love that. Listen to me. There is nothing that can be of more um, more necessity. There's, There's nothing more necessary. There's nothing that can be more fulfilling than studying God. He is ultimate reality. And there's no better use of your time than digging deeper into who God is and learning more about Him. There's nothing more important than that. A.W. Tozer said, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person because it guides every other aspect of their lives. And so he says, to explore him is a wonderful adventure. To delight in him is our chief end. The study of the doctrine of the Trinity readily tips over into worship. We are left with a profound sense of awe as we gaze upon our great God. So why do we need to learn and articulate this doctrine of the Trinity? So that we can know him better and worship him more fully. And rejoice in the different implications for our lives. Here's here's the point of this all. Here's what I want you to walk away with. We must know the doctrine of the Trinity. So we can stand for truth and share the truth. We must know the doctrine of the Trinity. So we can stand for truth against error, against falsehood, against perversions of the gospel. And so that we can share the truth. Snatching others from the fire, not winning arguments, but winning souls for Jesus and his glory. So, Wade, why are you so excited about the doctrine of the Trinity? Listen to me. Come in close. It's all because of Jesus I'm alive. We sang it earlier. And I'm so grateful that God the Father in his sovereign mercy sent His only Son to this earth. 
And Jesus Christ came taking on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was born, he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, a perfect life, fully God, fully man, and of his, of his own volition, Jesus Christ went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ hung there, driven by his love for you and for me. And the Father poured out his wrath on the Son. And Jesus Christ paid the infinite sin debt that we deserve to pay. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And after Jesus died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, God the Father, listen, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they were all active in Jesus being resurrected. He defeated death itself. He's alive today. He's forgiven me. He's changed my life. It's all because of Jesus, I'm alive. That's why I'm excited about the doctrine of the Trinity. Where would we be without the triune God? We would be lost and and in our sins and hopeless, but I'm so grateful that God loves us. The triune God loves us, has made a way for us to know Him. So let's know Him better and better and better so we can stand for the truth and share that wonderful good news with a world that is in a spiritual fog. Because that truth will cut through that fog like nothing else.